You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 84. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Today's episode is sponsored by Squarespace.com. You can use the code LIVELY at checkout to get 10% off and go to squarespace.com lively for a free 14-day trial. At the end of this episode, we'll be speaking with Joy Laforme, a print artist and illustrator sharing about her website experience with Squarespace. And now let's talk about today's episode. This is part of our book club month for July, and we're speaking with Jessica Morgan and Heather Cox, the co-authors of The Royal We. This is the first episode of The Lively Show where we are interviewing both authors at the same time. So there are three of us on this call, which is a new first for the show. I am obsessed with this book. It is my newest favorite fiction book since pretty much, I would say, Pride and Prejudice, if you can believe it or not. I have loved it. It is an amazing love story that is a fiction book loosely based on Prince William and Princess Kate and their life and courtship leading up to their marriage. The characters have slightly been changed in many ways, and in many other ways, they're all the same as the actual royals themselves, the way that Jessica and Heather imagine them to be, if you will. It's highly entertaining if you're at all interested in the royals or just love a good fiction love story. In addition, Jessica and Heather are also the bloggers behind the hugely popular fashion website, GoFugWithAGYourself.com. We'll be talking about how they got started with their website, how that website eventually led to this writing career that they now have, and how the Royals became the topic of their most recent book. I hope that anyone that has read this book freaks out as much as I have getting to ask these questions and hearing from these authors themselves. And for anyone else that's looking to write a book or co-author a novel, this is a great episode to really go into the nitty gritty of how things like this are done. Let's go to the show. Jessica and Heather, thank you so freaking much for coming on the show. Thank you. We're so excited to be here. So Jessica, tell us how you got to where you are. Heather and I have known each other for a long time. We met originally because we were both writing for this website that is sadly now defunct called Television Without Pity. And if you're not familiar with it, it was a lot of fun. It did guilty pleasure television show recaps. I started writing for them in 1999. You can't Google anything these days without bumping into a TV recap, but Television Without Pity was really the first one that really showed people what it could do. Did you guys each cover a different show? Yes. Which shows did you cover? We didn't know each other at this point. That's how we met. This is Heather's because I realized I hadn't introduced myself to anyone yet. I started out covering Making the Band, which when I covered it, it was a one season show on ABC where I was the guy who founded NSYNC was trying to create a new boy band. That's how I got started. And then I bumped around to some stuff that got canceled. Like um, there was a show on UPN called Wolf Lake about werewolves, which was about 10 years ahead of its time. And it starred Paul Wesley from The Vampire Diaries, back when he was known by a different name. That show would still be on the air if it had premiered five years ago, but alas. And I covered several seasons of ER. I did a bunch of stuff also, but the ones I was probably the best known for was I did The X-Files, and then I covered the last few seasons of Dawson's Creek. There's nothing more 90s than writing about Dawson's Creek and The X-Files. But yeah, so Heather got a job out here in Los Angeles based on the strength of her writing, and we knew each other 
from the internet, basically. And when she moved out here, we went for drinks and we sort of hit it off and we've been friends ever since. So that's kind of like our real origin story as far as our friendship goes. And then our writing partnership kind of grew organically out of that. We had gone to the mall one day, as one does, and we were really highly caffeinated. I had probably had maybe two ice blendeds, which is not recommended. And we noticed while we were walking around the mall that basically all of the posters and ads, for whatever reason, were really unattractive. There was one for this movie that came out called Sleepover that you never saw and no one remembers. But the girls in the poster, like we knew what they looked like, but the Photoshop was so terrible on them that they were practically unrecognizable. And Heather and I just started joking that, you know, maybe we're too old and we don't get it. And that like now looking hideous is the new trend. The Photoshop made them look worse. Yes. They it made them look like cross-eyed. Like, yeah. I, I'm not even kidding. One of the girls had a lazy eye in the poster. And you're <laughs> yeah. like, I've seen this person. It, she doesn't look like that. It was yeah. very odd. Kind of riffing on that. That's how the website was born. We never really thought anyone was going to read it other than our friends. The fact that it took off and now we have books. We go to Fashion Week and we get to write about that. We feel really fortunate that we've been able to do all this fun stuff that sort of came out of what was originally kind of intended to be an in-joke. Or just a really ugly poster. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Thank you like to, that, to-, to that guy who can't do Photoshop. Or maybe he just didn't like them. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's highly possible. Yeah, the thing we liken it to today is how anytime anything happens, like John Travolta botches Adina Menzel's name or Angelina Jolie pokes her leg out of her dress, there is a parody Twitter account. And back in 2004, when we were starting our website, the natural jump that people made was starting a kind of a funny blog or a comedy blog based on just sort of like a small idea. So making the leap to a website back then wasn't as weird as it might sound now. Like it was a natural progression of a lot of people's in-jokes. And so that's just kind of where we went. And then we were lucky enough to get some traction. How about the name of the website, Go Fug with a G Yourself? Where did that come from? (laughs) That was, I think, just our addiction to puns and wordplay. (laughs) Um, We had been joking about the word fugly, which is a contraction of some spicier words, but we sanitize it to fantastically ugly. And so we were joking that like fugly was the new pretty. So when it came time to like coming up with a name for this website, it was like, well, what puns with the word fugly or fug really lend themselves? It was go fug yourself or fugging it up. And uh, we chose the former because we felt like it stuck a little bit better. And I will say that there are times when it's awkward. I never swore and still don't swear in front of my parents. And so having to tell them the name of the websites, I was like, I don't know. I just had that weird moment. And it was just one of those silly like daughter parent moments where I was like, "Uh oh, deep breath. I'm an adult now. Even saying it on a podcast or, you know, on the radio or even we've run into publications that don't want to print it because it's a little bit saucy. I get it and I don't get it, but I have to say I don't regret it because who's to say if we would have ever stood out in 2004 if we hadn't had a sticky name. So how did you go from writing the satire and the comedy on your blog with fashion to writing novels? For us, I think it was kind of a natural progression. If you read the blog, you know that we have a tendency to sort of create fictional characters out of the celebrities that we cover a lot. Um, We have a tendency (laughs) to ascribe a personality to them that may or may not actually be factual. Because, you know, we don't know J-Lo, but we like to think we know J-Lo. For us, it was sort of felt like a natural progression to then actually write about actual fictional characters. We had sold a book based on the blog in 2006. And in the process of doing that, we came across a lot of editors at the time who were like, 
this isn't for us. We're not really doing blog books right now, but if you girls ever want to write fiction, we would love to read it. We love to write. We're also big readers. I read almost, I'd say 95% fiction. And I think for us, just the idea of having anyone be interested in that, we thought that we would love to do it and we would have to try it. So we were very lucky, I think, that our writing on the blog introduced us to a lot of people who decided they would be interested in reading stuff that we wrote that was properly fictional. So who are your favorite fake celebrity characters from the website? Well, I personally love Heather's Kanye West. Um, I don't think anyone writes a better fake Kanye than Heather does. So <laughs> thank that, you. That thank would you. Be my favorite for sure. What's his personality like? He raps solely in all caps. It's quite wonderful. <laughs> I do try. Thank you very much. And my answer was going to be the one that started it all, which was uh, Jessica's Britney Spears, uh, which started right around the time Britney famously published that letter of truth on her blog all of Jessica's Britney pieces take on that tone now um, with, you know, elements of her still keeping an eye on what Justin Timberlake is up to. Yes. My Um, Britney is obsessed with Justin still. Sadly, you know, she doesn't leave the house that much anymore. So I kind of can't pull the Britney out of my back pocket as much as I used to. I would love nothing more than for Britney Spears to have like a giant career resurgence for a lot of reasons, but to get to write to her again would be one of them. How did you go from the first books that you've written to getting into the Royals and tackling that topic. So that seems pretty big, I would imagine. It wasn't as much of a leap just because we do cover the Royal family a lot on the website. So I think it progressed pretty naturally out of that. And just our own personal interests, our affinity for the UK. Our first two books were young adult books. It's a book called Spoiled. And then the se- it's not really a sequel. It's more of a companion book called Messy. With It has one of the same narrators and then a, a new person. And so when we were coming up with new book projects, we were thinking YA because we've been writing in that genre. But then we were having a phone conversation with our agent. And as these things do, it naturally turned to the topic of Kate Middleton because I think she and William must have just like, they must have just done something or who knows her and everyone's fascination with her and how easy she makes it look and how impossible it actually must be to be in her position, you know, especially looking back at their relationship, the meeting in university and dating sort of on the down low and breaking up and then getting back together and the waiting and the press calling her weighty Katie and then all of a sudden turning around and embracing her with open arms the minute she got a ring on her finger. That relationship between her and the media interested us and just the things that it must do to her as a person, you know, the way it must affect the relationships with their friends and with their family and the people who are affected by her romantic choice that you wouldn't necessarily think about. You know, what has it done to Pippa's life? What has it done to her brother James? The heat that it turns up on those people. So we just got into this long conversation about that. And somewhere near the end of it, our agent was just like, she's like, someone should really write that book. And Jessica and I like sort of both took a sharp intake of breath and we're like, well, we should write that book. (laughs) (laughs) We would have raised our hands had we all been in the same room. It really grew out of our interest. It grew out of something we were just really naturally drawn to. You know, yes, from a quote unquote gossip perspective and from a fashion perspective, but also just sort of sociologically, like just the experience of watching Kate Middleton and wondering what's going on on the other side of that and wondering just how deep those still waters run. For those who have not read the book yet, can you guys describe it in a way that doesn't give it away? Sure. The book is called The Royal We. It is about an American girl who takes a year exchange at Oxford And lo and behold, one of the people living on her floor is this really great guy who she falls madly in love with, and he just happens to be the heir to the throne. Sort of the elevator pitch is that it's if Kate Middleton were an American, it follows nearly a decade of this couple's relationship, the ups and the downs, and it really sort of examines 
ultimately like how much you're willing to give up for love. Why make Kate American? I think a lot of it was sheer practicality. You know, when we're jumping into a world like this, it's a relatively ordinary protagonist thrown into an extraordinary situation. You want as much of it to ring true as possible. We felt like if we made it a British protagonist, there might be an inauthenticity to the way that we rendered her inner monologue on the page, you know, like trying to put ourselves in the head of somebody who was born and raised in England is British to the core. Like it might feel more like a put on, you know, like when someone is trying to imitate someone British and does a really bad fake British accent, we were worried that our narrator would read like that. It might've been too much for people to get into and it might've put them off the book. Whereas we know what it's like to be an American lady. We are in that headspace ourselves. And so it was sort of easy for us to, just in terms of the little things, like the slang, the way you think, the words that come to you the quickest, the cultural reference points from like the span of this person's life are things that we we know without a doubt. Like we don't have to stop and think, oh, well, did they have that in England? Was that as big in England as it was here? I don't know. Like all of those things just kind of rolled off the fingers, if you will. And so making her an American, I think, gave it a good entry point and an entry point where we could be as genuine as possible in a way that would not distract people from the story that we were trying to tell. That's amazing. And a really great answer. Thank you. She was very sporty in the book. Is Kate Middleton actually that sporty? I mean, she's almost borderline, I guess you've used the word tabboy, I think a few times in the book. Kate's very sporty, actually. She and William are big sports fans. If you watched any of the London Olympics, uh, you saw them basically cheering for everything. Um, well, remember that one trip they took? Was it Canada, Jessica, where they did the they each did like a boat race and Kate beat William and she looked at him and gave him kind of like an in your face like or it was it wasn't was, in your face. It was more of like a sucks to be you. I totally won kind of shrug. In Canada, um, he beat her twice at a boat race. But then when they were recently in Australia, she got him back and beat him twice at a boat race. Okay. So yeah, they're very sporty. And then like when they announced she was pregnant with George, actually, she had just been at a an event at her grammar school, I believe. And she was playing lacrosse with the girls in like heels. And there's actually a photo of her playing lacrosse and she's completely levitated. (laughs) I actually think one of the reasons they get along so well is because they have similarly sporty interests. But also for us, you know, having Bex be sort of sporty and a tomboy, you don't want your protagonist in a book about a girl who falls in love with a prince to be too princessy. I think it's more interesting if there's kind of a divide there. So in addition to being true to life, I think it also made the differences between where she was coming from and the world she was being asked to enter a little bit more interesting. So let's tackle the big question, which is, to me, research. How did you guys prepare to write this text? And how long did the research phase take? The research phase kind of organically intertwined with the writing phase for a lot of it. We read a ton, and Jess can expound a little bit more on that. We sold the book over the summer. We started outlining. And when Jessica and I co-write a book, we like to have a really solid outline in place if we need to work on certain parts independently, or even if we just, one of us has it and the other doesn't, like we just need to be clear on like emotionally where we're going. Like what are the benchmarks we're trying to hit so that we don't accidentally find ourselves in Topeka when we thought we were going to be in Boston. You know, like we need to, (laughs) we need to make sure that we're following a rough path that gets us to where we need to go. Once we had our outline hammered out, it was probably around Thanksgiving. We started writing some of it, but we knew at the beginning rather than in the middle or the end of the writing phase, we wanted to take a trip to England Both of us had been there before. I actually grew up over there. We needed to go from a writer's perspective and we needed to go with targeted itineraries in mind of places that, okay, if we're going to put this in the book, we need to go there and write it down with our eyeballs, write it down with our actual hands if we want. Like we need to go and really marinate in these locations that they come alive for the people who haven't been there. So we went on New Year's Day 
we did like a six or seven day trip in England. We had to come back for the Golden Globes. The drama of our scheduling is we had to squeeze it in right before award season started. And we basically, we knew what we wanted to do. We knew that there was going to be a museum in play. And I had been to a museum in London called the Sir John Stone Museum, which is like a wonderfully eclectic oddball place that I highly recommend anyone checking out if they go over there. So we went and we were like, does this suit what we need? Let's really soak up what it feels like to be in this place. We're going to have her go to Oxford. I had been once when I was a teenager visiting my sister there and basically was enjoying the uh, partying lifestyle there. So I didn't really didn't really take a lot of mental notes about what it was like. So we wanted to go spend a day in Oxford, which was basically like the first time for both of us in that situation. And that was neat because, you know, Bex also hadn't been there before. So we were, we were like, okay, well, we can see what are the things that leap out at us as we go around this tour bus, as we're walking around Christchurch College, as we're walking down Corn Market Street. Like, what are the things about being here that really jump out at us? And how can we let that sink in and then like translate it onto the page? Little things like that. So we basically spent a week doing that, doing palace tours. We went to Windsor and went to Windsor Castle, you know. And that I think was the most important, not just for those locations, but just because it got us into the spirit of it. It really like inspired us to keep going and inspired us to get back and really jump into the writing. It made us just, it almost gave us like the motivations, the motivation that we didn't really need, but like just that extra frosting on the cake to be like, we want to do this and we want to do it right. We want to do it justice. Let's dig into this. So how long did it take to write it? Because it's 450 pages. And from the extra letter at the end, it sounds like you had to narrow it down to those 450 pages. <laughs> we did. It was originally 812. Oh, my gosh. I know. I will say that that's in Microsoft Word. And yes. so the final copy in Microsoft Word was 516 pages. So I don't know what the 812 pages in Word would have been in printed book. But it's a lot. Can we have like buy it? Because I want to read the rest. <laughs> you know what? Thank you. People have the asked thing is that. You don't. <laughs> well, the truth is you sort of already did read it because we didn't really cut out any major plot points. We cut out a lot of description. We cut out a lot of inner monologue. There was like a lot of repetitiveness. Maybe we cut out one or two scenes, but you haven't really missed too much. I think you really got the best experience possible. It was such a long book. We were really nervous as you are with anything. Are people with us? But yeah, so it was quite a lengthy writing process, I have to say. Heather kind of talked you through our trip to England, but then through the process of writing it, we only turned in our final, final, final pass pages, which is when you're looking at the book as it is laid out to be printed. It's your final chance to make changes. We turned those in January 6th of 2015, and the book came out April 7th, which is a very, very, very tight turnaround. We really sort of wrung every possible human hour of the day out of this book. So yeah, it took us a full year for sure. Plus the writing obviously took a lot of time, but also Heather talked a little bit about our trip to England and, you know, we read a lot of books, but we also, because so many of our characters are British, we wanted to be very careful to make sure that they sounded like they're really British people. So a very good friend of mine, Eliza Hindmarch is in fact British. So we went through a period where she was reading it and giving us notes on word choices. For example, there was a bit where Nick said that Bex was running around in a washcloth. Eliza was like, Brits don't say washcloth. And so we sort of had to write around it because we were in an interesting position where we want the British characters to sound accurate, but we don't want what they say to be confusing to an American reader. So, you know, we had a, our Britishisms pass. So there was a lot going on with this book that we had to sort of see to even beyond just the writing of the plot. We would both then need to read the whole thing and make our notes. And it never failed that 
we had different nodes. Like, and it's funny, like she would notice really obvious typos that I'd missed and I would notice an obvious one that she'd missed. Like it actually took a village. Okay. Do you have a note on page six? I have two. Okay. Here's the, do you have anything on page seven? No, I don't have anything till page 12. Oh, I have something on page 10. Oh, just all that. Like the logistics of like a 450 or, you know, 512 word pages, the logistics of going through that as many times as we had to, just to make sure it was proofed correctly. It took some time, but, uh, we got through it. And we often stopped down in the middle of writing it to check something on etiquette or whatever. Like Jess has a tower of etiquette books and we read some William and Harry biographies. As we ran into a situation, we'd be like, oh, you know, I remember Jess going to having a big late, late, late night email conversation about whether the British currently use fish knives. What's a fish knife? A fish knife is a special small knife that you use to cut your fish at a fancy dinner. Yeah. It's like slightly slanted. It's a little bit narrower at the tip than at the base. I grew up over there. My dad had fish knives. I don't know. Apparently, it used to be in vogue, and then it be somehow became gauche. And we had mentioned them in, in the Buckingham Palace scene. And Jessica was like, it might be gauche to have fish knives. And we went around and around about it. And then we decided that the fact that we were having a discussion about whether a piece of cutlery was gauche was perfect. <laughs> so we worked that in. <laughs> we actually worked the fact of it in there. It's something like, you know, only in the English upper crust would there be like a social scandal involving cutlery. But like, as we went, we would sort of stop and be like, okay, we need to check what is the procedure for XYZ? Like, what do they call the protection officers? Is it royal protection officer? Is it personal protection officer? You know, can we use them interchangeably? Stuff like that that we would run into, we would sort of stop and figure it out as we went. Did you intentionally twist any personalities that you know was not exactly true to the character, but it made a better book for some reason? For us, all of the characters are themselves. It's obvious that Nick, the romantic lead, is based on Prince William. He has a, a roguish and charming, fabulous, ginger-haired younger brother named Freddie, who obviously is based on Harry. But everybody else is really very much their own self. We didn't want it to feel like fan fiction. We didn't want people who are reading it to be like, oh, well, this is obviously Prince Andrew, or like, this is clearly Princess Anne. We just kind of let all of that stuff go. We used a lot of the major signposts of William and Kate's actual relationship. They're meeting at college, they're lengthy dating, they have a breakup in the middle, all of that stuff is based in fact. But other than that, everything else we just fictionalized. I think for us as writers, it was much more freeing to just create Nick's bumbling uncle, Edwin, who does a lot of dumb stuff, is just made up. So Well, he, there are shades of the actual yes, actual in there. But yeah, he's not he's not meant to be Prince Andrew or Prince Edward. Like certainly both Andrew and Edward have done some dumb stuff, but like the royal family sort of doesn't have direct analogs. They were kind of their own creations and we would borrow where appropriate. But it was nice because that lets us get them messy a little bit. You know, we wanted our characters, including Bex, to screw up and be able to make mistakes. Like, you know, you couldn't think of it as, well, she can't do that because Kate would never do that. Or he can't do that because Harry would never do that. Like it wasn't Harry, it was Freddie. You know, during the outline phase before you really know these characters as well, there is the tendency to think that way. And then there was a moment where we were like, you know what though? that's not who they are. Like, it's not Harry. It is Freddie. It's not William. It is Nick. Once we like mentally cut that cord and started writing and got to know these people, it all came from there. And everything they did was true to who those characters were. You guys wrote a 400 or 800 page book. If you really <laughs> think about it that way, how do you guys co-author it together? Are you literally tackling different chapters or is one person the scene person, the other person's the description person? How does it work? Someone once asked us if we were in the same room, like typing simultaneously. And I always sort of flash on that mental image because that's not what we do. And we would never get anything done. What we do is we write, as Heather mentioned earlier, a super detailed outline. And then we basically essentially trade back and forth. I will write a big old chunk 
at the end of it, you know, I'll leave any notes for Heather. Like I deviated from the outline a little bit here because of X, Y, Z. And then I thought we could do yada, yada, yada. And then she will read my whole section, rewrite it, change it, give notes, do whatever to it. She'll write a big old chunk on after that, a new chunk, send it back to me. And then I will repeat the whole process. So we basically are writing and editing and then writing again. People often wonder if there's two people, do we each write half the book? And the answer is really no, we each wrote the whole book. It's such a product of both of us that I can't sit there and pick apart like, oh, well, I think those two sentences were me. The whole thing is a product of both of us tweaking and pushing and having sometimes unbearably long, but worthwhile to us discussions about word choice. But it does have to start with, you know, one person starts and then we just sort of tag in and out. Um, it's it seems fun, to be actually. Because it is really fun. I always say that it's kind of like you get a sneak peek of your favorite book by your favorite author, like chapter by chapter. I love the writing part for myself, but it's also always very exciting to be like, ooh, what happens next in this story? I didn't do this part. Like, let's see what's next. <laughs> With a co-author situation, too, there's always the risk that people are going to pick up the book and start reading it and then be like, holy cow, like, chapter four feels like it was written by someone else completely. Or, you know, in the middle of a chapter, just be like, wow, suddenly it's as though there's a different author. Like, you don't want, you want it to really blend and be one voice. And so the trading back and forth really seems to help us achieve that, you know, because that way we do both get to blend what we do. Do you think the book is better because you both worked on it than if either of you had attempted it separately? Yes, for sure. I say to Heather all the time that I don't understand people who write a book by themselves. And I know you are currently writing a book, Jess. Yes. <laughs> we both have a lot of sympathy for you being in the weeds with your laptop right now. And I think that having someone else to really, really bounce ideas off of that you know is 100% invested in this project is so valuable. I think writing can be very solitary and it can be sort of lonely. And I think that we're really fortunate that we always have another person who's sort of in it with us. But I also just think that we make each other better writers. I think we have similar strengths and similar weaknesses, which is not great all the time. But we also, Heather's better at some stuff than I am and vice versa. So I think that we really do make each other better. At the same time, also, just on a practical level, there being two of us means that our drafts have always seeing another pair of eyes, which I think in terms of getting your book in good shape is only going to help you. Yeah, we have like our own beta reader built in, you know, we don't ship it around to other people be like, can you read this and tell me what you think? The way we trade off, it means that when I hand the book to Jessica, she's working on it, I get a little bit of a break. So when I get it back, I'm fresh, and she's tired. And so I get to work on it for a little while. And then I get tired and give it back to her and she's fresh. It's really nice to have that moment to be so in the project and then step back from it a little bit. And obviously, you're still thinking about it, but you're away from it enough that when you jump back in, you, it's like having fresh eyes every time. And very few writers have that luxury. And also, when most writers need to take a break and walk away, the work is just sitting there waiting for them. We're lucky because when I need to take a break and walk away, I send it to Jessica. She's working on it. I can take a second to breathe. And I know the project isn't just sitting there dead, like glaring at me. <laughs> it's actually moving and breathing and continuing you don't feel that mound of pressure like, oh my God, but if I don't get back to my computer, I won't hit my mark of writing X number of words today. We give each other little vacations in that way, which is nice. I told you earlier, I'm in a Royal We recovery program now, <laughs> <laughs> trying to get back to my normal sleeping schedule because every night I would start reading. I could not stop. And then I just would lay awake too excited by what had happened. <laughs> I love hearing that. Thank you. And I know my friend Anna, who also has read and loved the book, was saying that she found herself in a similar place. So here's a question. What's the response to the book been like for you guys? It's actually been so great. And, you know, I think every writer loves hearing that people love their book. But 
it's sort of hard to say because our other books came out before we were really super active on social media. So it was harder for people to get to you. The response has been like remarkably positive to this book in a way that has been incredibly gratifying. Heather and I are really proud of it. We love it. We worked really hard on it. And so to have other people be like, oh my God, I stayed up all night to read the book. It's just the coolest thing ever. It is so awesome. You know, we really love these characters and we loved thinking about them. We love spending time with them. So to have people like know them now is the coolest thing. And it's nice too, because there was some worry about the length. Was it still too long? You know, was it, and Jessica and I felt like we couldn't cut anything else out of it without losing something big. It's been nice to hear that people still want to spend more time with those characters even when they're done. So like we wrote a book that's 400 and some pages and people aren't closing it and being like, well, thank God I was done with those people. Like there are people who have tweeted to be like, I found myself wondering what Nick and Bex were doing the other day. And then I realized that they're not real or, you know, (laughs) wonderful things like that where you're like, I'm very proud of Spoiled and Messy. And we've had really nice reaction to that. But we did get one review on Amazon from someone who said that she hoped all of the characters in the book would die in a major volcanic explosion. (laughs) Which is... Kind of thought hilarious. that was kind of fantastic, right? <laughs> like I had to sort of stand up and applaud that one. That's somebody who had a really strong reaction to our book and I, you go. But I will also say that it is lovely that nobody has said to us, knock on wood, that about these characters. Like people really seem to have embraced them as themselves too. And not even just as Kate and William, when that's really the hump we wanted to get over is will people go on the journey with them as Nick and Bex? And they really have. And it's so gratifying and wonderful. And I almost feel like parental pride. Like I'm proud of us, but then I look at the copy of the book that's sitting across the room right now. And I'm just like, I'm proud of you. Like almost like it's our baby. (laughs) It's really weird. Question. When is the movie? Ha! You put your lips. Same response to that too, which was ha! From your lips Uh, to God's ears. Uh, That would be great. There's no movie plan right now or mini series. Not yet. You know, that's so out of our hands. Obviously we would love there to be a movie or a TV show, but it's so hard to get a movie made out of a book. It really is. Even like, I don't know if you've ever read the Michael Chabon book, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which won the Pulitzer. It's a great book. It's one of my favorite books ever. It's been in development literally for like 15 years. And that book won the Pulitzer Prize. So I think just getting a book made into a movie is very difficult. And we don't have any control over it. My God, it would be great. We have a movie agent for it, but we'll see what happens. Basically, you have to cross your fingers on that one. Well, I'll do whatever I can to help make that happen. (laughs) I only ask that you let me show up on set one day and... How about for casting? Have you guys thought about the cast? Casting is going to be my favorite part of that fictional process whenever it happens. Uh, Yeah. Bring in all the hot British guys. We just have to see like 25,000 hot (laughs) British actors. It's going to be brutal. Who knows what will happen with that? That is something that I think every author would love but has to let go of. Yeah. Okay, here's a question. Are you going to write like 12 more? That would be great. I think there's sort of a delicate dance that would have to happen. Like, does the publisher want one and do we want to do one? And I don't know who blinks first. And, you know, I think right now Jess and I are still sort of taking a mental break. But we did not write it with an eye toward there being a sequel. You know, we're happy with where it ended and how it ended. I do think obviously there could be one. If we do it, it has to be the right story. It can't just be for the sake of doing it. I feel like I want to make sure we have something new to say and not just treading the same ground over and over again. Hey, she just had two kids. That's right. Rest assured, if we do it, we will be as careful as possible not to make it like, you know, the royal we part do. Like, we will really do our best to make it something fresh for everybody who have been so loving toward Nick and Bex. I mean, yeah, I think we would probably love to spend more time with these characters. People have been asking us if we're going to write a sequel. And the true honest answer is a lot of that depends on if 
real talk here, our publishers think it would sell enough for it to be worthwhile for them to invest in it. But I think that's something that a lot of authors don't really want to come out and say, but it is true that there is a little bit of like business involved there that also like the movie is kind of out of our hands. The truth of it also a little bit is that without having any spoilers, the last scene of the book only happened three months ago. So not that much has happened in Nick and Bex in the last three months, presumably. So in order to write another book, I think we're going to have to let a little bit of time pass just so that they can have further adventures. I see. So you're not looking at how long ago Princess Kate and William got married. You're looking at when the book released. Well, if you look at the dates in the Royal We, we're very persnickety about them. We made it basically so that the last section of the book takes place in and around when the book was released, which that would be like April 2015. That makes sense. I guess I assumed it was all happening on their actual timeline back in their actual lives. We have a huge calendar of it. If you go through it, each of the sections is date X through 2010 or something like that. But the way it actually works out in real time, the final scene of the book takes place in mid-April of 2015. So... Probably would have been smarter if we'd given ourselves that extra Yeah, question. we <laughs> did not think of that at all. Like, it did not occur to us at all that, oh, my God, what if they want another one? What are we going to do? <laughs> They're going to have to have, like, a crazy, very brief adventure. Time I mean, travel. obviously, the, it takes a long time to write a book. It takes a lot of time for a book to come out. In the sequel, Freddie invents a DeLorean yes. that can time travel at 88 miles an hour. <laughs> and they go it's back to World War II. There you go. This is That will be a great book. They are yes. going to fight Hitler. I knew we'd get Nazi hunters in there somewhere. Yes. <laughs> okay, here's the last question about the book. Are you sick of the royals after all of this? I'm not. They're sort of my beat on Go Fuck Yourself, so I write about them every week without fail. I have to say that it's my favorite thing to write on the website. I do not ever get tired of it. I find it fascinating. And I think as Americans, because we don't have a royal family, to us they're sort of exotic in a way but in a way that we sort of understand simply because we've grown up learning about them. To me, it's fascinating. Like the idea of being in that world is really interesting to me. It's also sort of the books that I myself read. I read a lot of books set in England. So for me, I am not sick of it. I find them to be a really interesting counterpoint to the Kardashians. I mean, the Kardashians are a family that fancy themselves American royalty who have begged, borrowed, stolen, clawed for every ounce of fame that they've gotten. And the royal family is famous because that's how they were born. You know, you look at the reluctant royals, there's the ones that might be perceived as entitled seeming and maybe oblivious to their privilege. But then there's the ones like William, who seems to have taken from Charles and Diana and and married that into like he's got a sense of duty, but he also has a sense of normalcy that he likes to keep about his life. And Kate, who is now the most famous woman in the world, not because she asked for it necessarily, but because she fell in love with William. It's interesting to me to look at these people who are famous, not for reasons of their own choosing, but because that's their birthright and that's what's expected of them and the different ways that they handle it. I never really tire of of watching the different ways that they handle it, you know, from Beatrice and Eugenie to him to Harry, you know, imagining some of the things that must be going on behind the scenes when uh, any of them misbehave and, you know, is the hammer coming down from QE2 or just the other little gaffes like 90 bajillion year old Prince Philip dropping an F-bomb as he did today at a public event, imagining what the fallout from those things are and how everybody else seeing people's faces as it happens. I find it to be very interesting. It really is sort of a soap opera, and there is something appealing about them as, as I said, a counterpoint to the people like the Kardashians who grasp at fame so hard that you think that their knuckles are turning red. 
Okay, I have one other question. I lied. So <laughs> is it as popular in Britain as it is in the U.S.? The book has not come out in the U.K. yet. It actually comes out there on July 15th. Um, it's coming out there and in Australia as well. We have a lot of British readers. We have a lot of Australian readers on our website. But it was sort of a hard sale, the book was, in the U.K. because I don't know if this is true, but the perception that we were told was that British readers really, like, don't really care that much and they don't really want to read about the royals. Like, they get enough of them in the paper. They're just not as interested as Americans are. And, you know, to a certain extent, I think that probably is possibly true. I really don't know. But it's been an interesting experience to sort of publish the book here and see the reaction we've gotten from publishers here and then having more difficulties in the UK because of the idea that it's just not that exciting to them. Getting away from the book, what doubts or resistance are you facing in your life right now? Right now, Heather and I are kind of trying to figure out, I don't know if I'd say it's doubts or resistance, but like the thing that's on my mind right now is we're, we are trying to figure out what book we're going to write next. For me, there's always something very comforting in having our project is figured out. There are certain writers who always have tons of ideas, loads of ideas. They have a really hard time finishing one book because they want to move on to their new shiny idea. And I'm the opposite of that. I love the writing process. I love having the plot figured out. I love the editing. I like being in it. Not knowing what we're doing next is scary. So that is taking up a lot of headspace for me. You know, it's good. You have to go through it. I want to get better at it. It's something I'm not great at. But right now, that's kind of what I'm grappling with. Like, what's next? Yeah, mine would be similar. I think I can execute on an idea, but it's coming up with the great idea that is really difficult for me. Like, the coming up with the idea and the outline part of writing a book is so much more stressful for me than the actual day-to-day sitting down and writing the chapters. So now that we're back at the beginning of that process, you know, I always think while we're writing a book, I'm like, oh, this feels so good. I remember when we were starting this and I was like, I don't know if I have another book in me. Like, what if I don't? What if I can't do it? And then here I am writing this book and it seems to be going pretty well. So I'm looking forward to getting to that mind state about whatever our next project will be. But right now I'm in the insecure beginnings. And just in general, you know, I always, I worry that I'm somebody that sort of settles into a rut of, well, I can't do that. So I probably won't. Am I pushing myself hard enough? Am I trying hard enough to better myself? And, you know, am I advocating hard enough for my kids when they need it? Am I trying hard enough with myself when I need to exercise a little willpower and, you know, lose five or 10 pounds or whatever? Like, am I, am I resting on my laurels or am I, am I really trying? And I think I've been taking Taekwondo lately, which has been really fun. And one thing that uh, one of my instructors was talking about was actually it's relative to how we write the books. They're like, you know, if you're trying to achieve something, like write it down, like don't force yourself to just sort of wing it to get there. Like if there's something that you want to figure out, write down a few of the steps that you need to take to get there and check back on it and just be like, okay, this is, it's like, this is the reminder. This is, you don't have to stick to the map, but like, this would be one way to get there. I need to do that with a lot of things. I need to start writing down a few that it's like, okay, I need to keep track of what's going on with my kids this way. I need to be checking in with X, Y, and Z at this time. And I need to be for myself personally, if I want to lose weight, I need to stop buying this. And I need to, I think I need to start putting onto paper some of the things that happen in my head that are so easy to brush aside when I'm standing in front of the pantry. So (laughs) that was a really long answer. No, that's great. I'm struggling with everything. (laughs) Well, we all are, right? In some way or another, usually something's going on in our lives. So thank you guys for sharing that. So now, what would you tell someone who is just starting out on this journey? I have a good one for this, actually. And I hope I'm not stealing Heather's answer, and I might be. We have people who write to us a lot and are like, give me writing advice. And I'm always happy to actually to take the time and do that. And as a sidebar, I would just like to ask anyone 
if you write to someone and ask them for advice about your career and they write back to you, please write back to them and say thank you. Because I can't tell you how many times I've taken actual proper time out of my day to give someone advice and then I never hear back from them. And it's kind of a gut punch. Like it's really not cool. That aside, someone did email us and she asked us for hacks to write a novel. How do you hack your novel? And I wrote back to her and I said, there isn't a hack. You just have to do it. You have to sit down and you have to type. That is it. It's not easy, but it is simple. You just have to write. If you're a writer, you write. Sit down and write something. Just start writing. All of us want a shortcut. And then you think there's got to be a way for me to figure out like a trick to make this easier for a lot of things. When the fact is it's already easy, you just don't want to do it. You know, you don't want to do the work. And I think it's true for writing. I think it is true for exercising. God, I hate to exercise, but like there's no trick to do it. You just have to do it. Starting out on anything that you want to do, you have to just realize that there's going to be some work involved. And if you want whatever is at the end of the road, you have to run down the road to get to it. You just have to do it. It's not going to appear for you. And I think that that's hard sometimes. It's hard for me. I think it's hard for everybody. So my advice is to just do the work and then also write thank you notes. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Jessica. Okay, Heather, how about you? I have a couple there that are sort of related. Like I think if you're in any field, not just writing, ask questions. I remember when I was starting out, I was in journalism and I was a young hire at a newspaper in Austin. I was covering high tech, which was a really hot beat. I was putting too much pressure on myself to to feel like, oh, they must have hired me. They must think I already have this figured out. I don't want to show them where the cracks are. I just have to fake it till I make it. I know what I can do that is good. And then the rest of it, I'm just going to act like I can do until I can figure out how to be like a good investigative reporter or whatever. That was a lot of pressure to put on myself in any position. Like I think asking people, if you're not sure about something or if you're like, you know what, I want to get better at this. Help me figure out how I can get better at this. Ask people. People love to give advice. I think it's good to ask those questions of people. Like not necessarily to say I want a shortcut, but I'm missing this and I can't figure out how to get it. Like, how can I build that skill? Because if you put that kind of pressure on yourself to try and figure it all out yourself, you probably won't. People like to be asked. People like to feel like their opinion is important to you. Like, don't feel like it makes you look lesser if you have a question or if you are saying, this is where I am weak, I would like to be stronger. And don't be afraid of it sucking. Don't be afraid of your first effort not being right because that's how you get to the better stuff. You know, the first sample chapters Jessica and I ever wrote for our very first book were not good. Our agent was like, okay, that was kind of like throwing you off the dock to see if you could swim. And you did not win an Olympic gold in freestyle, but you did not drown either. But now let's talk about what needs to be worked on and start again. And we did, and we wrote a better book because of it, but we would never have learned that if we hadn't taken the first stab and been like, you know what, if it's terrible, who cares? It's written. We can't critique and we can't build if we don't have a first effort. That can translate to any professions. Like you just have to try You have to not be afraid to fail and you have to understand that as much as cliche as it is, you really do learn from that stuff. Things that you will never learn from just not doing it at all. I love that. Jessica, to your thought that you shared, there is a book for anyone that is having that trouble to sit in the chair and write. It's called The War of Art. Have you read it? Oh, no, I haven't. All right. Well, you need to get your butt in a chair and read that book. I will. You're going to be mailing that to all the people that email you. I promise you, you will. I actually love it when people ask me for advice because I love to tell people what to do. So when people (laughs) email us for advice, I love to give it to them. A lot of times people do write back and they're lovely and that's wonderful. I don't at all want to make it sound like I don't want people to ask me stuff because I love it. You just want them to write you back. Yeah. I just want a little bit of an acknowledgement that like, hey, I took some time out of my day and I talked to this person that I don't know. You're going to get a lot of emails, Jessica, saying this publicly on the show. 
Bring it. I love it. If you guys want advice, I will give it to you. And then Heather, there is a book for your advice as well. If people want to go deeper into letting go of the fixed mindset that they have a certain level of ability and if they don't do it right out of the gate, then they can't grow. It's by Carol Dweck and it's called Mindsets. So for anyone that loved your answers, those are two books that go deeper into each of the topics you guys just shared. I love the idea that there's a book for everything. That's awesome. Yes. You guys should go read them. I think you'll love them. They're everything you guys believe in. It's awesome. Thank you. I love that. It's so nice that like solving problems with books is such a refreshing way to do it because it's like anything that makes people read more, right? Including me. Absolutely. You guys, thank you so much for making my day and for writing such an amazing book. Thank you so much. It was really like a delight to talk to you and to be here. Thank you so much. We can't wait to read your book when it comes out. I know. (laughs) Absolutely. And there you have it. Thank you so much, Jessica and Heather, for coming on the show. And thank you for listening. If you would like to send Jessica and Heather a message, you can go over to Twitter. Their handle is at FUGGirls. And for me, of course, on Instagram, Twitter, and now Snapchat, you can find me at Jess C as in Coral Lively. For show notes on this episode, head over to JessLively.com slash The Royal We. And before I share who's coming up on the show for book club month next week, I'm speaking with Joy LaForme in a mini interview about Squarespace.com. Joy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Jess. I'm excited to share you with The Lively Show. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a print and pattern designer. I design all kinds of artwork and patterns. I do it for textile studios and large companies. I sell the prints to them and they use them for home decor and women's wear, children's wear, all kinds of stuff. You are very talented at what you do. And your website also shows that. Tell us a little bit about the background of the website that you have. Yeah, absolutely. Back in the day, I used to be a web designer when I graduated from college. And I wanted to build my entire website from scratch right away when I started freelancing. And I maintained my own website for a while. But as I began to make the transition from web design to graphic design and then to print and pattern work, I really found that that transition was taking a lot of time and I didn't really have the time I needed to devote to my website. I really needed something that would take the responsibilities of maintaining something so difficult off of my desk. I'm pretty picky when it comes to how it looks too, and so I really needed it to look beautiful. And so Squarespace became the option. Why? Well, I had been seeing a lot about Squarespace on Pinterest and on Twitter, and so I became sort of interested in it. And I checked it out during the free trial just to see what it was like. And I absolutely loved that it gave me the ability to mess with the back end and add my own CSS so that I could really create all kinds of fonts and colors and twist the layout a little bit to make it my own. I still use one of the templates that they provide, but I've totally customized it to be my own template. That's awesome. And it kind of gives a lot of fresh perspective for anyone that also knows CSS or web coding and still wants the ease of use that Squarespace has with support and all the bug fixes and that kind of stuff. Absolutely. What would you recommend for other people who are savvy when it comes to building a website? I would recommend to check out all the platforms that exist right now, but at least give Squarespace a try. 
they are so generous that they offer that free trial because it really makes a huge difference in being able to play with the platform and see if it's a good fit for you. I really felt like they were such an open book and allowing me to get in there and play with all of their different settings and sort of have fun with it and even put my own work in to the portfolio section and get it looking almost like what I would want it to look like if I had paid for it. And so they pretty much had me hooked. What do you love about it the most? Well, I love being able to customize it. That's my absolute favorite part of the platform. I'm constantly changing colors and messing with my branding a little bit here and a little bit there. And so having that flexibility of getting into the back end and changing things very quickly is something that I don't think I would be able to live without. And where can people find your beautiful website online? They can find my website at joylaform.com. And I'm also on Instagram at joy underscore laform. And for anyone listening who wants to give this a shot, whether you're a professional like Joy or you're just starting out and you just want to use all of the what you see is what you get features that Squarespace offers, you can get a free 14-day trial by going over to squarespace.com lively. That's a great way to get a free trial and support the show. And if you're excited to move forward, you get 10% off your service by typing the word lively at checkout. So use that to save yourself some money and give it a shot for free. Joy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're so welcome, Jess. And now for a sneak peek. Next week on the show, we are speaking with Elisa Vitti of flowliving.com. Elisa is an amazing holistic health coach who is helping women around the world transform their approach to their hormones, their menstrual cycles, and ultimately their lives. I'm so excited to have her on the show to discuss her book, Woman Code, because truly it is changing my own life. Her story is incredible and I cannot wait to share it with you. Until then, may something wonderful happen to you today. 